In your bulletin, you'll see that the Trinity uh, vision moment is about worship, vision, and the new members class. That is um, my mistake. That's not true. It's um, actually not supposed to be there at all. (laughs) But before the kids come up here, uh, I want to remind you uh, women about one event that's in the life of our church this afternoon. Right after worship, we invite every woman in the church, whether you've been a longtime member or this is your first Sunday here, to join us at Trinity House for a women's brunch where we're gonna talk about women's ministry in the life of our church, where we wanna see it go, how we can help encourage each other more and more. And so if you didn't have plans to come to that brunch, but you want to, please come. We'd love to see you there. We, as though I'm one of the women, I am gonna be there, but we, we do wanna see you there. There'll be plenty of food. Also, in your bulletin, you'll see this green Trinity Connect card. If this is your first Sunday or this is the umpteenth time you've been here, please fill it out, every one of you. And if there are things that I prayed in the sermon or in my, the pastoral prayer that you wish I would have prayed, right, please put that in here so the elders can know how we can better pray for you and the prayer team can pray for you. Okay, kiddos, if you're up through fifth grade, would you please come and join me down here at the center court? Good to see you guys. How are we doing? I want to ask you a very important question this morning. Are you ready for it? You're sitting down. Are you ready? We're still coming. I want to ask you a question, and it's this. Is there anything that you can do better than your mom and dad? Yes. I see Ilya knows. What is it, Ilya? What can Playing hockey, that is true. You can do that better probably than most people in the state of Oklahoma. Um, Eli, what can you do that your mom and dad, better than your mom and dad? Clean the house and be respectful and not disrespectful. Oh. From the mouth of a pastor's kid. That's right. Cohen, what about you? You're better at playing football than your parents. What else? Annie. Uh Uh-oh, here we go. Dancing. Dancing, That is true. She's seen my moves. Max, what about you? Playing games. Playing games. That's right. You know what? You know what? Okay, tell us what's yours, Nicole. Um, I like to clean my room a lot. Juniper, that's right. You like to clean your room a lot. Do you do it better than your mom and dad? Yeah, Nora, what's yours? Do you want to share yours? You like to set the table. I love it. These are all great things. Thank you for your hands. So there are some things, guys, that you can do better than your mom and dad. Now, would you expect that there would be some things that you could do at your age that would be better than the adults? Cohen says yes. But most of us would, would, would think that there may be a few things. You can, you can do monkey bars better than your mom and dad. You can take bubble baths probably better than your mom and dad. You can play. You can sit in the bathtub longer than your mom and dad. You ever sit in the bathtub and get all pruney? Yeah. Yeah, your mom and dad probably doesn't like, they don't like that very much. Do you know what's true? Jesus says that you can also do some things better than your mom and dad too. You know what Jesus says that you can do better than your mom and dad? You can, you can believe. You have faith. What does that even mean, Augie asks? It means that you sometimes have an easier time of believing God than your mom and dad do. Yes, even your mom and dad. 
there's a fancy word we call that. It's called a paradox, which means that you might not think something is true, but in reality, it is. It defies logic for a young person to do something better than an older person. And when we look at you in worship, kiddos, we see aspects of Jesus in you that we desperately need to learn from and grow in. And so as you worship, here's our little challenge between me and you. If you want to wiggle in your chair and if you want to dance as we sing, you have my permission to do that. You can do that. And if you want to dance, you can dance. And if you want to shout, you can shout. Because we as a church need to see things that you do better than we do. And that is a paradox of what it means to have you guys in worship with us that you can teach the adults many things just as the adults teach you. And our prayer as elders of this church is that every one of you know that though your last names may be different, our true name is the same. We are children of the King, no matter what age we are. And boys and girls, I pray that one day every single one of you can come to the Lord's table for the first time, just like you're going to watch somebody come to the Lord's table for the first time today. And you can trust in Christ yourself, not because your mom and dad do, but because you know that you're a sinner and that Jesus died just for you and he rose again on the third day. Children, isn't that good news? That's good news indeed. Glory to God. Children, children God's peace be with you and also with you. Go forth to worship in peace and with our love. And adults, as the kiddos come back to their seats, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you, just like these children, you may abound in hope. The peace of the Lord be with you always and also with you. Let's stand and greet somebody that you haven't seen in a while. If you need a place to sit, there are some extra seats up here on the front row. We are so glad you're here. Okay, friends, if you have a Bible, would you please grab that Bible and open with me 
to John chapter 6. Meet me in John chapter 6. The gospel of John that we're preaching through has been called a pool in which a child can wade and play and an elephant can swim. John is both simple and yet profound. It is often the first book of the Bible that people read when they come to the Bible for the very first time. They often read the book of John. John clarifies some things that Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't answer. For example, Matthew presents Jesus as king but does not tell you the reason why John does. Mark presents Jesus as the servant to men, but it does not explore the depth of his communion with God. John does. Matthew presents uh, Jesus as the authoritative king and ruler. John explains why that's so important. Luke presents Jesus as the perfect man, but it doesn't explain his uniqueness from the rest of humankind. John does. So for all those here who do not yet believe, John explores the mysteries of the Christian faith and he invites you into those. And for all of those who do believe, John provides assurance for us that the Lord Jesus holds you fast even when you feel like you're slipping away. That he holds us fast and nothing can snatch you out of his hand. So as we jump back into this passage in John chapter 6, we've been in it for several weeks. We'll be in it for a couple of weeks more. This is the grand central station of the book of John, John chapter 6. Would you stand and let's meet Jesus before the crowd explaining to them why he is the bread of life. One of the seven I am statements. I'll read from verse 35 down through verse 40 and we'll think about it together. This is the word of the Lord. Please give your attention to it. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father." That everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. And I will raise Him up on the last day. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Father, would you take this text, words on a page in a very ancient book, and would you use it to change us by the power of your Holy Spirit? For it is true, it is inerrant, you are here, you are in it, and Lord, may we hear your voice. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever witnessed a paradox? Charlotte Heffelmeyer came home from her freshman year in college to celebrate with her family Thanksgiving. 
they had Thanksgiving dinner, and like many families, the next day, all the ladies in the town or in the, in the, uh, in the family decided that they would go into town and go shop, except Charlotte had to stay home because she had some assignments from college that she needed to work on. And as she's at home, she hears commotion in the garage, and she goes out to her garage, and to her horror and shock, she finds that her father, who had been working on his pickup, was pinned underneath it because the jack slipped. And here Charlotte is, she screams out for help and she realizes that nobody else is home. Her family is all away shopping and it was just her and her dad. And her dad's screaming under the truck and she thinks, what do I do? Do I call 911? Do I yell for the neighbors? I don't have time, what do I do? And so Charlotte Heffelmeyer grabs that GMC utility pickup and this freshman in college lifts that truck up and she by herself drags her father out from under it. Small girl, big truck, that's a paradox. What's a paradox? A paradox is when something defies your logic. You don't think that it's true, but it is. A paradox is the idea that God's word, despite all the objections that you might have to it, is true because Jesus assumes it tr it's true. And as we draw near to Jesus, we begin to believe the things that Jesus believes and treasures. Listen, life is full of, of paradoxes, isn't it? Uh, Charlotte Heffemeyer's actions show us that a paradox is something that defies our logic. Who would have imagined that she could pick up such a large pickup to save her father? But, but she does. In this passage, Jesus shows us that he in himself is a living paradox. Jesus is one man without a commercial kitchen, and he feeds 5,000, more like 15,000 on that hillside. Jesus, without the jetpack or without a boat, walks on water out to meet his disciples on the Sea of Galilee. Jesus shares the glory of his Father, and yet he emptied himself, Philippians 2, 8 says, he became obedient to death. Jesus, who was the one to deliver his people from oppression, is crucified as a Roman criminal. Jesus was a living paradox. Jesus said, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, the king of the world submitted his own will to his father, but to do the will of him who sent me. And when Jesus says this in this passage, it bothers the crowd. It bothers the crowd because the crowd came after Jesus to be this uncompromising leader, this hero that can then free them from the oppression of Rome. I mean, this crowd, when you think of the crowd, think about like guerrilla warfare crowd. Like they're hungry for war. And Jesus is saying things that do not meet their expectations. He was a living paradox. In John 6, one of the things that John wants you to see in recounting this of the seven I am statements is he wants you to see that as a Christian you have to embrace paradox in order to see his power in your life. You have to learn to embrace paradox in order to see power in your life. 
And when you see the paradoxical ways that Jesus is working here, you will find him yet again to be worthy of worship. Jesus combines contradictory qualities and features. Of all the people in history, no one has been attacked as much as Jesus, and yet it is Jesus who has led a movement that started in the Middle East, swept over into Europe, came into the New World, and now its headquarters is where? Is in Asia and Africa. It's the only world religion to have a headquarters in history on every continent of the globe at some point in time. Jesus is the one who is mocked and jeered at, and yet he is the one, years later, who you actually find yourself before communing with and repenting of all the skepticism that you carried at some point in season in your Christian life. John wants us to know that you have to embrace paradox in order to see the power of God in your life. And when Jesus tells them that he's the bread of life, the crowd is stunned. Bread of life. And I'm just going to rattle through as many as we can get through in the time we have together, the paradoxes that we see from John in this passage. And then I'm going to invite you into some paradoxes that you live in right now and how Jesus and reorienting your life around Jesus as an apprentice of Christ, dependent upon his finished work, actually helps you see the power and glory and work in his life. So first, paradox number one, lower your eyes to the text. Look at verse 36. Jesus says, I am the bread of life, verse 35. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. Jesus says, I am, ego ami, the bread, ho artos, of life, taste zoes. Zoes is a definitive genitive, which means that it is describing the, the quality of the bread or that the bread supports and gives life. You could translate it, I am the bread that has life within it. Of all the menu options that you're choosing from, I am the only one that you will actually find sustenance and life in. The problem is, verse 36, but... Allah in Greek, you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. As much technology as we have at our disposal, we remain um, remarkably blind to our own self-awareness, don't we? We have access to so much as modern Western people, and yet some of the fundamental problems of humanity we still um, struggle with. Steven Pinker is a name you may know. He's a world-renowned physicist at Harvard. He just wrote a book called um, Enlightenment Now. And in this book, he basically argues, look, we are at the greatest point of human history. There's, there's less poverty than there's ever been. There's, um, there's greater, there's greater um, job growth. He gets into parts of the economy. There's greater, uh, there's greater world peace than there's ever been. And there's greater sense of progress for humanity. He writes as a humanist, doesn't believe in God. Because for Steven Pinker, the ultimate goal is utopia, which we're, we're moving toward according to the humanist worldview. And that if we can only educate ourselves better, if we can only develop the right technology, if we can only like, lower our sabers against each other's nations, then we'll have world peace and harmony. And people are reading Pinker's book, and many people are in the humanist camp are saying, this is amazing, Yes, and amen. And there are also people in the humanist camp who have read Stephen Pinker's book and been like shocked. Like, 
what are you talking about? Because I've never been so lonely. My friends are more depressed than ever. Prescription drugs are going through the roof in, in their number of prescriptions per capita for mental illness. What do you mean, Stephen Pinker, that we're progressing and many people outside the church and many of us have believed this humanist vision that we're going to continue to progress, whether with the right leader or the right economics or whatever it might be. We're going to continue. And people are saying, no, the humanist vision has died. It is not true. That if you judge it by different uh, metrics, you'll find that we actually aren't doing better than we ever have in history. We're actually facing the same problems we have in history. And in fact, even though our technology has grown, you know and I know that so many of us are far more lonely than we used to be. We're more distracted. And Jesus says to them, I know that you've heard, I know that you saw, I know that I've provided for you, but I tell you the truth, verse 36, you have seen me and yet you don't believe. And some of us would say, well, Jesus, if we could only see you do a miracle, if you would only help me get a job, if you would only help me pay off my debt, if you would only help my children come back to you, if you'd only restore my marriage, then I would believe in you. Can I be honest with you? No, you wouldn't. Not when the operating principle in your heart is that Jesus comes to meet your needs. Because the gospel teaches that it's only when you are willing to lose control that the gospel begins to take root. There's a story in the New Testament where um, the rich man of Lazarus, remember, and the rich man said, Jesus, he finds himself in hell. And he says, Jesus, just go to my brothers. And Jesus says, if I sent Moses to them, they still wouldn't believe because they're trying to use me to get what they want. Are you? The paradox of the gospel is that in a world that we seem to have so much control over, the gospel asks you to admit that you really don't have that much control. We could talk about this all day. The greater problem in your life and in mine is not secularism. It's your iPhone. A lot of us hate that we have that. If, if we could have a valet that could take our iPhones and we walked in worship, man, we'd do it. Some of us couldn't do it because we'd worry about the security of it all. And those, those are legitimate worries. But most of us are not disciplined enough to click that thing off. And the reason why we're not disciplined enough is that maybe we have to be accessible all the time, but maybe we just have too important a view of ourselves. The truth is, it would probably do you a lot of good on Sundays to turn your phone off. Are you willing to lay down your agendas and to believe in Christ on his own terms? Seeing isn't always believing. How can I be more productive at work if you ask me to take a retreat for my soul? How, Jesus, can I possibly get healthy by looking back at the trauma of my early childhood in order for me to have a healthy adulthood? How could you possibly be asking me to give to the church or to give to a building fund when I have debt to pay off? Jesus, what are you doing? The paradox of Jesus that he asks us to live into. Seeing isn't always believing. 
In fact, it's in the midst of those difficult circumstances and it's in those paradoxes that Jesus asks of us that we find that we really grow when we lay down our agendas and we believe him at his word. Second, look at verse 37. Another paradox we see in verse 37 is he says, all that the Father, stop, Father, (laughs) what? To call God Pater, Father, is blasphemous. No Jew would dare call Yahweh their father because it was far too intimate of a term for the holy God of Israel. And Bible scholars have discovered that throughout the entire canon of Jewish literature, the history of Judaism and all the existing books of the Old Testament and all the existing books of the extra biblical Jewish writings, dating from the beginning of Judaism until the 10th century AD in Italy, there is not a single reference of a Jewish person addressing God in the first person as father. It was too intimate. And yet Jesus comes upon the scene and he says, Father, all that the Father has given to me. And I know that some of you have a hard time calling God your Father because you had pretty crummy ones. And I weep with you in that. And it's no small thing to have had a hard dad. But I want you to know that the gift of calling God Father is not so that we could then be disappointed in our own earthly fathers or be disappointed that God might somehow be like our earthly ones, but it's actually to flip the script and to say that all earthly fathers are should be judged and measured by the Holy Father, the Lord God himself. And so we look at our Father in heaven and we say that's what earthly fathers should be like. And our fathers aren't like that. I'm not like that to my kids, but I want to be. But we have a father who is perfect in every way, unlike ourselves, who welcomes us to come to us, and he knows just what to say. He knows just how to care for us. He knows, <laughs> he knows, guys, how to listen to the ladies when they talk and not try to fix it all the time. And yet, of course, he has the solution to every problem. He is a good father. Verse 37b brings us to another one. It says, God, it, God chooses us, but we come to him. Verse 37b, notice Jesus talking to this crowd. It says, whoever, um, all that the Father gives me will come to me. I don't get that. How can we be given and yet we can still come? Some of us, some of us wrestle with this idea in Scripture, right? It's, it's this... Um, it, this, this idea of um, that God might choose some and not choose others. How do we, how does that, that doesn't make sense, that's paradox. That doesn't make sense. God chooses me, but I come, what? Hmm. Scripture teaches that God called you to be his long before the dawn of time. Long was he at work in your heart before you ever witnessed it or knew it. And yet when you came to believe in him, you found yourself running to him. You felt like it was completely your call. It was beautiful and right and joyous. And you did come to him on your own free will. Our free wills aren't limited. You came to Christ on your own free will. I'll prove it to you. If, if you had an option today for brunch, and let's say for the next 30 days I gave you the option of having filet mignon or potatoes. Kids think like um, chicken fingers and french fries, right? So you have like filet mignon potatoes, chicken fingers, french fries, or you had monkey brains with excrement sauce. So you have filet mignon potatoes or monkey brains with excrement sauce. Which would you choose? 
you choose the filet mignon, the chicken fingers, yes, the, the, the french fries. Do you have a choice in making that decision? Of course you have a choice. It's not that you, it's not that you wouldn't choose the monkey brains and excrement sauce. It's that you can't. Because in comparison, this is so beautiful and your mouth waters and you'll want it. And when Jesus opened your heart to the gospel, guys, he was long at work in your heart before you ever knew it. But when you hear the gospel preached and you recognize what he's done for you, man, you run to him. You choose it. It's not that you wouldn't have chosen not to choose him. It's that you can't help but choose him because you see him so beautiful. God chooses us, but we come to him, verse 37. The Apostle Paul says that in love, he predestined us for adoption, Ephesians 1, 5. D.A. Carson says that God compels belief, not with savage constraint, but with the wonderful wooing of a lover. Today, for example, we think that we make our own choices as modern Western people, but that's not true either. Studies have shown that if you go to a mall and you're shopping on Black Friday and a fire alarm goes off, nobody will leave that building. They'll keep shopping. And it only takes one people, two people, three people slowly to have a non-anxious presence and turn and say, we should probably exit the building, that the crowd turns. You know this is true in the way that you read your news because there is an issue that you don't even have any clue about that pops up on your Twitter feed or shows up on your Facebook profile. And all of a sudden, your ambient anxiety, your ambient anxiety rises. And now you feel anxious that you don't care more about that issue because everybody seems to care about that issue. Do you see what I'm saying? We find ourselves far more controlled by the community than we think we do, which is... Which is um, Ironic, because we find, we say that we're so radically individualistic. But no, you're not. You are so compelled by what the group thinks in almost every environment that you're in. You have a digital nervous system that controls you far more than you think because we're always connected to our phones. The question is, what authority in your life will actually bring you life? And that's the role of the church. We're trying to help you have shalom, have peace, to detach from your digital nervous system and to lower your ambient anxiety and to cast your cares on Christ because he cares for you. We're trying to create a community where it's okay to not be okay, where the only requirement for church membership is the admission that you do not belong and deserve to be a member. Where we can mess and carry each other's messes, where we can be in each other's life, where we can be this radically new technology called the church that cares for each other in a human way, in ways that nothing else, no other technology can possibly accomplish. Because we have this technology called the Holy Spirit that's given to us to give us a peace that lasts, that defies our circumstances. And it is a paradox. Paradox number one is that seeing isn't always believing. Number two is that God the Almighty could be called a father. Paradox three is that God chooses us, but we come to him freely. Paradox number four is that there's always room for one more sinner with Jesus. <laughs> Jesus, the infinitely holy one, the perfect man, holy God, totally man. And yet he always makes one more 
place at the table for you. In fact, it's set for you. If you don't yet believe, there's a chair right there for you. Come. When you come to the Lord's table this morning, take a seat at Jesus' table. He says in verse 37, all that the Father, paradox two, gives me will come to me, paradox three, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Jesus will not cast out confessing sinners. He welcomes them. I don't know anywhere in the world that I can be kept safe for free. I'm safe in my house, but I pay my mortgage. I'm safe on the road, but I bought the gas. I'm safe in public parks, but they close. I'm safe at school, but school ends. Jesus invites us into his safety, but the only requirement for entrance is the admission that you don't deserve entrance and that you never will. The self-professing, self-righteous Pharisees are out and the confessing sinners are in. And by faith in Christ, we are free from the penalty of our sin and we are covered again with his righteousness. Our damage Though it has lasting effects, our status has changed. We are his. When Lauren and I this summer, when I was on sabbatical, we stayed at this hotel called the Tututan Lodge on the Rogue River in Oregon. It's this amazing hotel. And we we were welcomed there, and it was just amazing hospitality. But they were very clear on the checkout time. And you know that a checkout time is just a fancy word for the hospitality industry to say you're evicted. And so we knew that we were to check out at 11 o'clock. And we therefore had to. But with Jesus, there is no eviction. There is no checkout time. Jesus says, I will never evict you. If you're mine, you can never leave the grip of my hand. And you're not worthy here because I have your credit card on file. You didn't buy this place anyway. I did. You're worthy here because my father owns this hotel and your reservation has my name on it. You can stay here forever. Some of you may know that Susan Ford um, was President Ford's daughter, lives in Tulsa. And when she used to live at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, um, during her father's first term, her Holton Arms School didn't have a place to have the prom. You've heard me tell the story before, perhaps. And so Susan Ford went to her father and said, Dad, so we don't have a place to throw a prom. <laughs> Can we have it here? And President Ford opened up the East Room, and all these Holton Arms seniors came pouring into the East Room, and they had a party in the White House till 1 a.m., 2 a.m. at night. And that's the picture we have. Jesus says, there's room for you. And we come because of my relationship with my child, Jesus. And come party. Come celebrate. And celebration ought to be the theme of your life. I know that things are tough. But in the midst of that darkness, in the difficulty, is a profound sense of gratitude that Jesus is with you and near you. And that he loves you. So there is always room for one more sinner with Jesus. Paradox 5. Second person of the Holy Trinity submits to the Father's will. Jesus, who has all authority, says in verse 38, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. Jesus knows what it's like to obey. He did it perfectly. And so when we're called to do hard things from God's word, our response should be, yes, Jesus. The paradox of not wanting any authority over our life 
and yet knowing that only this authority is life-giving. The last one, Jesus was cut down in order to raise us up. Verse 40, and with this I'll close. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. The paradox of Jesus on the cross, bloody, muddy, the laughingstock of all of the world then. The great judo move on Satan. His greatest punch, Jesus then takes and turns and uses it for the resurrection. That is a paradox that is beautiful. They saw Jesus feed 15,000 people with a sack lunch and they didn't believe. But he's the bread of life. You've seen Jesus work in other people's families and you say, Jesus, could you possibly work in mine? Yes, he could. Would you believe it? Do you pray? Do you ask? Do you plead with him? We have to embrace paradox to see his power. And Charlotte Helfemeyer lifted a truck off of her dad and Jesus lifts the weight of the sin of the world off of us. And he took upon himself the weight of our sin and the chaos of the world and it all came crashing down on him so that we might be pulled out from under it and be set free. Seeing isn't always believing. Believing is believing. Jesus has a father and he makes a way for you to have one too. The father gives us to Christ, but we gladly, willfully, joyfully come to him. There's always room for one more sinner with Jesus. And Jesus submits to his father's will and Jesus was cut down so that we might be raised up and have new life in him. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. This is our paradoxical savior, Jesus. Do you believe it? Jesus in himself is a paradox. Offered to the world that the world might see that the truth is on offer to you from God. And that too is an amazing paradox in which we see the mystery of the gospel. And we're about to take the Lord's Supper. Another paradox. Bread and wine, his spiritual presence to nourish us and strengthen us. Would you this week pray, Lord, help me to see and count all the paradoxical ways you're at work in my life. And would you pray that the Lord would help you become more lost in wonder and grandeur and reflection and glory at how amazing our Savior is. Infinite God, intimate lover, almighty Father, friend for sinners. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Jesus, what a friend for sinners. You are the lover of our souls. Friends may fail us, foes assail us, as the old hymn says, but you are our Savior and you make us whole. Who will separate us from your love? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? For we are sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God. In you, Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whose name we pray, amen. Friends, as you prepare to give for the tithes and offerings, would you please do so in a paradoxical way, a way that says the way that you find freedom from finances is actually that you give it away. 
Would you pray about your giving? Would you allow that also to be an area where Jesus has a right to encourage us to use it as stewards for his glory's sake? And so as the deacons pass the offering around now, would you give joyfully and regularly and generously for the sake of his kingdom? Thank you. On the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and he says, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me and in the same manner. After supper, he took the cup and he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood poured out for remission of sins. The Apostle Paul instructs us that as long as we eat this bread and we drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Hallelujah. The Lord be with you and with your spirit. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Let us give thanks unto our Lord God. It is right to give him thanks and praise. It is right and good and a joyful thing, always and everywhere, to give thanks unto you, O Lord, Holy Father, Almighty and everlasting God. And therefore, with the angels and archangels and all the company of heaven, we laud and magnify your glorious name evermore praising you and singing. The Lord's table is a table for sinners. It's a table for people whose children can do things better than them. 
like clean or be respectful better than their parents. If you think you deserve to sit down at the table with Jesus, that in and of itself is proof that you don't. Jesus calls sinners to the table. People that know their need for him. And so when we take the supper, we take it knowing that it's only by his invitation. It's not the table of Trinity. It's the table of Jesus. He's the one that invites you. And the qualification for how you come is this. Do you believe in him? Do you trust him? If you do, then the table's for you. If you're, if you're still skeptical of Christianity, if you don't profess to be a Christian, I'm so thankful that you're here. But please don't take this. Because by taking it, you're professing that Jesus is king, he's Lord, and he is coming back. In a moment, as I pray and the servers come up, we'll take the supper at one of four stations. There's two in the front and two in the back. You come in small groups, form a semicircle around the, around the server, and they'll instruct you. The red is wine. The white is grape juice, and if you need a gluten-free option, it's there in a small container. This morning, we have, we have the privilege of seeing yet another covenant child come to the table for the first time. Kiddos, kiddos, all eyes on me. Whenever you are ready and you want to say, Jesus is my king and he's my savior, me and Pastor Blake and the elders want you to come talk to us because we want you to be able to come and take the Lord's Supper with us. And we look forward to that day and we pray for that day when you make it your own. You're not at church just because your parents come. You're at church because you believe in Jesus. This morning we have the privilege of welcoming Annie Altman to the table for the first time. What will be unique about today is when we have a first-time communicant come, we just ask that that family come up first. So once Annie and her family come up and take the Lord's Supper, then you're, you all are free to come. You're free to go to any station that you like. So if you would, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this true bread and true drink. Jesus, our Savior. Help us partake of him by faith. Help us to be lifted up into the heavenlies where he is. And we ask that as Annie comes for the first time as well, the Father, she would see your smiling face and, she, and know that she is loved and accepted because Jesus' blood covers her. In your name we pray, amen.